If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Three great words. Free fries Friday. Especially when they're used in that exact order. Get a free medium fries with $1 minimum purchase. Bell one time on Fridays at participating McDonald's through 1231 Excludes tax must update rewards. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. Just like us, the Victorians loved their pets. And this didn't just end when the pets died. In the 19th century, the first pet cemeteries appeared in Britain. Dr Eric Turney of Newcastle University has been studying them. And our content director, David Musgrove, called him to find out what they can tell us about Victorian attitudes to animals. Right, so Eric... You've been running a, uh, a fascinating research project into uh, pet cemeteries from the Victorian period to the present, uh, which you've just published uh, an interesting article about it in the journal Antiquity. What have you been doing? Can you just give us an outline of, of, of your research? Uh, yeah, well, first of all, thank you very much for, uh, for having me here. Um, yeah, I've, as, as an archaeologist, I've long recognised the potential of cemeteries to record different aspects of our past. And historians and archaeologists, as you may know, uh, have used human cemeteries to reconstruct social relationships between people in the past, local sort of um, demographics, various research questions. And nobody's ever thought to look at pet cemeteries to see how, to what extent they record human animal relationships and how our relationships with pets have changed over time. So I just thought we're going to be kind of cool to, to record pet cemeteries over the past hundred or so years and see what the changes are 
in our relationship that is documented uh, via these gravestones. So tell me about pet cemeteries. Where, when do they first start to appear and where? So that it's surprisingly a recent phenomena in terms of the grand scheme of history. Um, the first pet cemetery in the UK, and as far as I could tell, the first pet cemetery in sort of Western Europe is in London in Hyde Park, first appearing in 1881. Uh, it's an interesting story when it first began. A, uh, the owners of a, a Maltese terrier named Cherry uh, approached the gatekeeper at London's Hyde Park and, uh, you know, said that unfortunately Cherry passed away and they would love to bury Cherry in the, the park where he loved to spend the most of his time. And the uh, gatekeeper, Mr. Winbridge, he uh, agreed and he actually lived in Hyde Park. He, as a gatekeeper, he had a little uh, private house um, with a private garden just close to uh, Victoria Gate. And he let um, them bury Cherry in his private back garden. And a, few, a year later, the, a Yorkshire Terrier by the name of Prince, who was actually a royal Yorkshire Terrier, he was the, the dog of the uh, Duke of Cambridge at the time, uh, he also died and he was buried in the back, Mr. Winbridge's back garden. And uh, within the next two decades, actually, um, we would see over, oof, at least over a thousand pets buried in Mr. Winbridge's back garden. Um, and that cemetery uh, was mostly closed by the 1910s, uh, barring a few random burials here and there, uh, but is still is still there today. And uh, it's, there's no public access to the pet cemetery. It's, it's, a very, it's in a very fragile state. There's lots of mini stones everywhere, but you can see it through the fences, through the bushes, um, from Bayswater Road, um, just running north of, of London's Hyde Park. So uh, that was the first pet cemetery in Britain, and it spawned the creation of many other uh, public pet cemeteries throughout the country throughout the 20th century. So, uh, so it was a, a kind of a late Victorian uh, initiation, and, and was it um, this this royal um, interest, this 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 early royal uh, pet? Did that sort of spark interest to people? You know, think, mm -hmm. oh well, if 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 the royal family are doing it, then uh, then that, that's good for us. There's definitely influence from the aristocracy at the time. So, while the pet cemetery in London is the first public pet cemetery, there were multiple pet cemeteries cropping up throughout 19th century Britain in the country homes and, and big estate gardens that you see throughout the country. So uh, in royal places like um, at Sandringham, where Victor Queen Victoria buried her dogs, uh, but also various uh, uh, elite households throughout the country uh, had their own personal pet cemeteries in their back gardens. So there's a question of whether or not these cemeteries influenced the first public pet cemetery in, in Westminster, uh, which itself, you know, it's, it's not a working class cemetery. It, it's, a, it's a cemetery by the, the wealthy and the elite living in London. There's definitely a sense of, of influence coming from the aristocracy at the time. So what... Um You've you've looked at the the, the memorials that uh, that exist and and remain in these cemeteries. What sort of epitaphs and and memorials were were, were put there? 
Right. So the the first gravestones that you see, the 19th century ones, they tend to be quite plain. They're very simple. They're all the same shape and size. They're very small. And many of them just uh, have the name of, of the pet, you know, Fido, and uh, a date of death, maybe. There are a few that have epitaphs. And these epitaphs are generally quite, um, they're quite simple as well. They refer to Victorian values, you know, what makes a good dog. So there's references to fidelity and obedience, loyalty, these these truly, these values that are the core of Victorian society. And this is what Victorians expected of a a good boy, a good dog. And uh, so you, you see a lot of that. You also see a lot of references to the metaphor of sleep um, to represent death. And this is a common metaphor used in Victorian cemeteries at the time as well. So in in human cemeteries I'm talking about, uh, where the metaphor of sleep, which we still use today, things like rest in peace, here lies, so-and-so, also influenced the shape of the, and, and the overall look of the cemetery and of the gravestones. So the the gravestones or the, the plots mimic a, the shape of a bed. You have your your uh, gravestone, your headstone, which mimics the headboard. And then usually you have a, a, an outline of the plot with a curb or a stone and maybe a, a footstone resembling the, the footboard of a bed. And these references to, to people having gone to sleep. So this continues into the pet cemeteries at the time. So we're seeing it in both places. And it's an interesting metaphor because it, it suggests an impermanence to sleep. It suggests a, a reawakening, perhaps, and hopefully a, a, re, a reunion between the survivors and those who have died, um, which I think is the interesting point to make about the Victorian pet cemeteries is that very few gravestones, other this, than this metaphor for sleep, very few gravestones suggest a reunification in heaven. There are a handful of epitaphs that will say things like, um, could I think we would meet again, it would lighten half my pain. Or uh, this nice little um, epitaph from Wee Bobbit, in, who died in 1901, uh, which reads, uh, when our lonely lives are over and our spirits from this earth shall roam, we hope he'll be there waiting to give us a welcome home. So there, there's this element of, of hope of a reunion, but not a direct statement of my, you know, the, my pet is, is going to heaven. Because the big argument, or a big argument at the time of whether or not animals had souls, and it would have been quite controversial to, to state so on a, a such a permanent monument like a gravestone. So that was that was uh, the next question I was going to ask you is um, kind of what was what was the church position if if the church had a position uh, on on these on these cemeteries and burials because as you said it was the generally accepted uh, position uh, Christian position at the time that animals didn't have souls that's right that's right yeah the, the church has always uh, or the various churches have always been vague on the matter but what's clear is that society or the the prevailing society at the time was not very comfortable with the idea of of giving the same 
Christian burial rites to animals as they were uh, people. And you see this in the location of pet cemeteries in this country, the, the early ones especially. They, they are not located on consecrated grounds. They are located in uh, public spaces, civic spaces, or on private land. And there, the, 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 the gravestones like the ones at Hyde Park are very careful about the religious connotations that they make on the gravestones. So there's no, there's no religious symbolism. Um, I only saw two crosses in uh, almost 500 gravestones there. And there's no, um, yeah, there, there's, there's no specific mention of reunification in heaven. There were even reports, uh, or I, I came across a newspaper report from Edinburgh in 1885, around the same time that the first public pet cemetery was, was being used in, in London, that detailed a cat's funeral. So that this, this woman in Edinburgh had just lost her cat, and she organized a full funeral a procession and all, and a, a burial in the local churchyard. And so throughout the procession, apparently a, a large crowd had gathered and were, were yelling at her, at the cat, about the uh, indecency of it all. Um, and were really quite angry that this cat was receiving a burial in a, in a Christian graveyard. And after the cat was buried, the crowd gathered in the graveyard, um, excavated the cat, smashed the coffin, and removed it from the from the from the graveyard. And I, you can imagine how this would be quite a traumatic experience for the pet owners. And it, it's it's therefore not surprising to see that people are actually quite hesitant at what they write on the gravestones of of their animals. So the fact that many of these gravestones in the nineteenth century don't don't mention a reunification in heaven is not necessarily a reflection of the belief of those individuals burying the cats, but of but more a reflection of where society is at the time and what people are comfortable saying publicly. So your research uh, into into these cemeteries is uh, takes us uh, uh, beyond the Victorian period into, into the 20th century. Have you identified uh, changing attitudes to this uh, and a sense that um, uh, pet owners expect to see their their pets reunit, re, uh, joined with them again in, in some sort of afterlife? Yeah, so I looked at a large sample of gravestones up until the 1990s, uh, various different grave, um, various different cemeteries across the UK. And one of the most notable changes as time goes on is that beginning around the 1940s, sort of after World War II, you start to see crosses everywhere. So in that big 19th century sample that I looked at, almost 500 gravestones, there were only two that had the symbol of the cross on it. Of the about 500 or so gravestones I looked at sort of post-1945, um, there were over uh, 100 gravestones with crosses, and the epitaphs are also revealing of. Th th there's no, there's no longer a hope of reunification in heaven, but there's a certainty of it. Right, one gravestone um, read, "God bless until we meet again." So there, there's certainty there, um, which is, I think, again reflective of the fact that society was no longer. Maybe, was no longer upset about the idea 
or maybe no longer cared about whether or not someone believed their their animals were going to heaven or not. Um, so people felt maybe a bit more comfortable in an increasingly secular society to publicly claim that their their pets were going to a heaven and then that they would be reunited. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. The epitaphs that you read can be quite uh, gushing and effusive in terms of the the qualities that they impart on the animals. You know, one wrote, uh, this is the most intelligent, faithful, gentle, sweet-tempered and affectionate dog that ever lived. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Right, so that it's a fascinating project looking at these uh, at these these grave markers. I just wanted to sort of broaden this out a bit and, and try and understand uh, a bit more about Victorian and and earlier, um, if possible, attitudes to pets. I think you said uh, that, that it's sort of, it's generally accepted that pets become a thing in the Victorian period. I was reading a book about medieval pets the other day, and and there is and the author of that. Um, you know, suggested that uh, that in the in the Middle Ages people did have pets: dogs, cats, squirrels, monkeys, weasels, all sorts of things. Um, she found evidence for. So so uh, does that kind of boil down to what the definition of a pet is? Definitely. So pet keeping, as we understand it today, that that's the sort of that role that is familiar to us in today's society. Um, in earnest, began sort of late eighteenth, early nineteenth century, so slightly before the Victorian period. Before that, people had pets, they had dogs, they had cats. The relationship was slightly different to that which we had today. Or it's suspected that it's a much more... The, the, the animal didn't occupy that central position in the family household like they became to occupy in the 19th century. The animals often had other roles as opposed to just companions, um, cats and small dogs, for example, we were good at, at mousing or ratting, getting rid of the vermin. You had uh, work dogs as well that, you know, worked on the farm, uh, maybe provided security. The relationship was simply just not the same as it is today, where it's it might be purely a, a loving sort of companionship within the, the actual boundaries of the house. So, so when when would you say does Britain become a nation of pet keepers? <laughs> I, this has been widely debated by uh, historians. I, I think most agree that period of of late eighteenth, early nineteenth century, where where we start to invest a lot of time, a lot of money, and a lot of our um, a lot of feelings really into pets. Many argue that the Victorian period is a watershed in our relationship with pets in that we start to consider the animal's feelings, the, the 
pets' well-being. It's when we see the arrival of the RSPCA, uh, various animal shelters get founded for the first time, taking care of taking in strays. Uh, various new laws dedicated to the protection and well-being of animals start to appear. It's also when you start to see uh, dog breeding and animal breeding, um, uh, like we understand today. So the the pet breed standards that we know today were all very recently developed in the 19th century. Um, it, Victorian period is also a time of great conflict between our relationships with um, animals. So while you you have this increasing interest in protecting animal welfare and well-being, you also have a massive rabies scare, which results in the euthanasia of many, many stray dogs. So actually, there's evidence that a lot of these early animal shelters that appeared in the 19th century actually advocated for the destruction of strays because of the, the rabies scare. Um, and actually were protecting the wealthy pet owners who whose dogs were accounted for, if you will, if they weren't strays. It's also a time where you see an increased interest in science and the progression of science. And a lot of research was carried out via vivisection. So you have this push for scientific progress and scientific research, but also an anti-vivisection movement uh, arguing for the rights of animals and, and animal welfare. And of course, that one uh, uh, won. And we, we now think of scientific research much, much differently. So it's, it's, a, it's, a time of, it's a time of great change in the way we envision our relationships with animals and the way we consider the role of animals within our lives. And was there... Um much of a economic or sort of social stratification to this? Or, oh, no, definitely. Or, or where does it stand? It, it's definitely, and especially in terms of the pets that we see, you know, archaeologically through the pet cemeteries, the pets being buried in the 19th century, these are the pets of wealthy owners. That's not to say that working class or, or the poor didn't have pets, but that relationship was probably different based on diff, uh, the the different means of those who who were able to take care of animals. Definitely, you know, wealthy, wealthier people were able to afford the luxuries of burying pets. Um, so the Hyde Park Pet Cemetery was created at a time when many living in London were actually living in extreme poverty and themselves doomed to pauper's graves. They couldn't afford their their own gravestones, whereas the the elite were burying animals in, in, with nice little marble gravestones in little graveyards. Um, that changes through time, of course, as more and more people can afford to, to keep pets in a similar way, um, pets as a, as a, as a mean of, of companionship alone. So, so yeah, so that, so that sense of of, uh, of the wealthy being able to bury their pets in in, uh, in expensive uh, graves and and the uh, and the less well off not being able to or not being able to afford to have pets at all that so that does highlight sort of just the innate discrepancies in Victorian society. I guess. So while the the those who couldn't afford to bury their pets in public pet cemeteries and, and pay to erect these gravestones in their memory. Uh, up until the, the sort of mid to late 19th century, one of the, you know, people still had dogs and cats. These animals still died when their time came. And usually 
they were buried. They might have been buried in a back garden, uh, but actually most of the time they were simply buried in the rubbish heaps of, of the households or in, in the middens behind the house, thrown in with the compost, if you will, um, or even thrown into the rivers. And for those who sort of lacked funds, the a, 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 a an animal carcass, if you will, uh, was a means of, of making money as well. They could be sold to knackers yards uh, um, for skins or uh, rendered for for animal feed. Um, so there was there was a there could, there was a potential profit to be had once your 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 dog or cat had died. Um, that doesn't mean you know if if these animals were sold to knackers yards or to or just give thrown in the in the the household rubbish. It doesn't mean that they weren't cared for in life, or they weren't that they didn't have a special relationship with the with the owners in life. It just means the attitudes towards animal bodies after death were a bit different than what they are today. So, uh, just a couple more questions. What I was, I was your, your period um, of, of research extends through the twentieth century. It reminded me of that terrible event um, at the start of the Second World War. The the, the I think it's called the Great Pet Massacre when um, uh, hundreds of thousands of pets were were put down because there was a uh, sort of gov- government advice to say that people should do that because of the of the looming threat of war, uh, which sounds like a, a fairly terrible event. I just wondered, does that did did you see anything of that in in your research? Yeah, I didn't come across any grave stones or graveyards associated with that event. Um, it, it hasn't come through. I think one thing to one of the the things to realize when looking at pet cemeteries is that actually they represent a very small proportion of animals who have died. Um, most people, as you can imagine, just bury their animals in their back gardens, and, and that that continues today. And then from the 1980s onwards, most people um, actually cremate their pets and maybe creep the the cremation the the, the cremains around their house, or they might spread the ashes somewhere. Uh, people still use pet cemeteries, but I estimate, and this is just a rough estimate, it's only about 1% of pets who are who are buried in pet cemeteries. Um, and broadly speaking, in terms of the animals, we're talking dogs and cats here. Are we? Yeah, mostly, mostly, mostly dogs, especially in the early 19th century cemeteries. The, the Hyde Park Pet Cemetery in a, uh, an 1893 newspaper article about it was referred to as a cemetery for dogs. So it was mostly dogs. There were a few more cats. And as you progress into the 20th century, you you see a lot more cats. Maybe dogs represent about 60 to 70% of burials and cats mostly the rest. The problem is though that you can't, the few gravestones actually tell you what species is buried. It's just a name and dates or a little epitaph. So sometimes you get names like Fido or Rex and you think, yeah, that's probably a dog, but it can be a cat as well. Um, there were a few gravestones of other species I came across. So in Hyde Park, there was one dedicated to budgie, which I imagine was a, a budgie, hopefully. Uh, there was a, a tortoise I came across, and this one specifically said it was a tortoise. Um, and there are reports that Hyde, the Hyde Park Pet Cemetery includes a monkey, but I haven't seen any historical documents for this. And I did find a gravestone for an individual named Monkey, but I suspect it was a dog with the name of Monkey as opposed to uh, an actual monkey. 
Right. To, to wrap up, um, uh, I suppose the general idea that people in Britain have that British people are animal lovers. We, we love animals and we, and we treat them well. Now, I don't know how far that is true. Um, and I don't know whether your research sort of informs us on that or informs us on the origins of that viewpoint. Do pet cemeteries exist in other countries apart from Britain? I'm sure they do. And, and does it help us to understand this, this general view we have that, uh, that, that, that we British are, are animal lovers? Well, definitely there are pet cemeteries around the world. And as soon as that public pet cemetery appeared in Britain in 1981, you start seeing pet cemeteries appear throughout Western Europe, uh, in America, so in France. The first one was in 1899 in Paris, um, again in uh, late 19th century in uh, New York State. They had the first one, the Hartsdale Pet Cemetery. But it's not just in sort of Western European countries. Um, Japanese have uh, the, the, the Buddhist cemeteries in Japan have a long tradition of burying pets. Um, and for them, there was never a, a an argument of whether or not pets had souls because or animals had souls because they did. And you see their pet cemeteries connected to human cemeteries. Either there there's a, a human and an animal section within the same cemetery, or that they're they're buried together. Um, and lots of research has been done on the Japanese pet cemeteries to reconstruct their relationships um, with animals as well. So, but in terms of that question about whether the, the British are animal lovers and, and how far this uh, helps us understand that? One constant that you see uh, in the British pet cemeteries, whether you're looking at gravestones from the 1890s or the 1990s, is, how, is evidence for how strong that relationship between person and animal was. The... Epitaphs that you read can be quite uh, gushing and effusive in terms of the the qualities that they impart on the animals. You know, one wrote, uh, "This is the most intelligent, faithful, gentle, sweet-tempered, and affectionate dog that ever lived." Um, let me read you a few here. Uh, the Jane, who was a, a lovely little Blenheim dog, um, her owners wrote. Uh, she brought sunshine into our lives, but took it away with her. And when Chum passed away in 1900, their owners wrote, uh, so lonely without my doggy. Another wrote, uh, he asked for so little and gave so much. So you can really get a sense of the emotions that people were going through when they were erected, erecting these gravestones. And that really tells us how important the act of burial and commemoration was and still is. It's very much a part of the grieving process. And it's the same for, for human cemeteries. The, the burial and the erecting of the gravestone is an important part of the grieving process. And it's, about, it's more about those who survive than it is about the individuals being buried. People felt it was quite difficult to express their grief for the loss of their animals. And that's also remained constant from the Victorian era through to today. You know, many feel a shame, a sense of shame even at the amount of grief they're feeling because society is telling them, a society might not be as empathetic about the loss of a pet as opposed to the loss of a, a human relationship. Yet for many, 
the relationship established with an animal might be as close or even closer than that established with um, any humans. So one of the, the other big trends that I was able to notice by comparing the late 19th century pet cemeteries to sort of uh, late 20th century ones is that in the late 19th century, pets are referred to as either pets or as friends and companions. Whereas when you move into the 20th century, they start to become members of the family. You see the uh, um, appearance of the family surname on the gravestone, sort of beginning in the, the 1940s. And it's standard practice when erecting a gravestone to write down the names of those, the survivors, if you will, those erecting the gravestone in memory of the deceased. And that you see this on human cemeteries, you see this on pet cemeteries. In the 19th century, people would leave their initials or use words like um, your loving mistress um, or your guardian. Fast forward to the 1940s and people, instead of leaving their initials, they say, love, mummy and daddy or mummy. So there's, it speaks, it definitely speaks to how people are seeing their relationship with animals during the, their life, during the animal's life, and the role of animals within the family home. So no longer friends and companions, but members of the family. Well, I'm sure your your research will speak to anyone who, who owns a dog or any sort of pet. So uh, thank you very much for talking us through it. Uh, thanks for your time. Thank you very much for having me. It was a pleasure. That was Dr. Eric Turini, lecturer in historical archaeology at the University of Newcastle. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. Tune in tomorrow for an episode on women's experiences since 1950.